Hello everyone and we just want to um, welcome each one of you again as you join with Kate and myself and we trust that you will be encouraged as you meet around God's word and you hear God's word. We just want to let you know that we do thank the Lord for each one of you that come on with us each week and we thank the Lord for our family, our friends, for all our children and grandchildren and for those who are serving the Lord throughout this world. We just appreciate one, each one and we pray that each week that you will be encouraged and that you'll grow a little bit more um, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Nice to be with you again folks and I uh, trust you've had a, a good week and um, that you've experienced the benefits and the pleasures and the privileges of knowing Jesus to be your saviour. We're going to look today at James chapter 4, verses 3 to 10. So if you've got a Bible, it's probably worth your while keeping it open to James chapter 4, uh, looking at these um, seven verses in here. And um, I want us to consider the great and amazing topic of when prayer isn't helpful. Now, that's a little controversial. So I want you to think, when's prayer not helpful? And it might cause some of you to be intrigued, might disappoint others. Uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll get into an understanding of this and we'll work our way into the text as we go through a message. James opens, however, in verse 3 of this part of the text with, uh, with these words. You ask and do not receive. So thinking about prayer, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly or you ask incorrectly to spend it on your passions. Uh, as a pastor, as a, uh, there are some biblical and theological subjects that really intrigue me. And prayer happens to be one of those. It's a, an ongoing challenge in my life to be a prayerful believer, and maybe for you too. So I want to get this right, and I want to learn what's correct here. So as I go through this message, I've been learning a lot of things about myself and hopefully learning about prayer along the way also. You see, Christians who pray in the manner highlighted by, by James here in verse 3 uh, can be equated to like Balaam in the Old Testament. They continue to look for direction from God, guidance from God, approval of God, uh, even though God has already told them through his word, the Bible, uh, what his will is for mankind to bring glory to himself. So God's revealed us, but we keep asking him for the same things. And by doing this, or by taking this attitude in prayer, uh, believers uh, begin to reject, if you want, the wisdom offered from God by the Holy Spirit uh, of God to interpret his word. And so they continue in prayer, asking God to direct them and to speak to them and make them the sort of uh, major importance in the subject here. Well, all along, God has been saying, I have spoken to you through my word. I have given you direction for life as to how you should live it. It's in my word. You've got to look there, research there. You'll find it. That's what we want to do today. Curtis Vaughan explains um, these prayer requests and methodologies in this language. He says their, their requests were legitimate. These believers praying like this, their requests are, are often legitimate, but the reason for making them was illegitimate. They wanted only to satisfy their own cravings, pamper their own passions, God's glory, God's service, consideration for other people. None of these things entered into their thinking. Such prayers, he says, are an insult to God. Now, that's a challenging thought, that we are insulting God by praying like that. And oftentimes, we as believers, we, we judge our, our spiritual state, our spiritual standing by our having conquered this sin or that sin. And to help us continue with this uh, success rate, if you want, we, we practice tithing and giving to the Lord's work, Bible reading, we do that faithfully. We have lots of prayer, all of which are good, 
But we begin to think, because I'm doing these things, I'm involved in these actions, I'm doing well as a Christian. So I want to say to us, this is not real Christianity. And this practice of prayer like this is not real. Unfortunately, it's really fanciful, spiritual speak, oftentimes prayed like the Pharisees to impress others around us. And I'm sure there's been times you've prayed with that intention. If I say this, they'll be happy. If I don't say this, they'll be unhappy. If I get my wording wrong, they'll consider me in a different way. Literally here, James is saying, don't expect God to answer your prayers because you're asking badly, you're asking wrongly, and often it is to feed your own pleasures. That's why you're praying. Lord, bless me, bless mine. Lord, give to me, give me this stuff. It'll make me feel happy. I'll be contented as a believer. You, I'll consider you have to bless me in this way. Well, in the Greek, Greek text, James uses the term kakos, interpreted as our asking wrongly, or if you want, our asking incorrectly. Kakos is a, a synonym for sin, meaning evil, bad, or, or wicked. And that, that's a pretty hard, pretty direct, even negative thought, because James is literally saying, believers, you're praying in a, in a wicked way. He's giving us a massive warning here. He's saying to, as a Christian, be careful. You can't just make this assumption. It's all OK. Be careful how you pray, pray because prayer is such a serious thing. And for us to get prayer wrong is a very serious action as well. You see, James is writing to a group of believers whom, whom he knows, and then, therefore he considers them to be filled with the intent of living according to their own ways or their own ways in life. But they call this Christian living. So what is the answer to the dilemma? Well, what's, what's the answer to the solution for James? Well, I think that Pastor James actually addresses the uh, solution here in the next several verses. Let me read verses four to 10 to you. James writes to this people, and if you want, he's writing to us, the followers of Jesus today. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the pride, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He opens with a warning. Now, please remember, James is writing to believers, those who have been redeemed by Jesus. In verse 4, he appears to be struggling to find appropriate language to refer to these believers. So he somehow seems to get up his courage here, and seemingly directed by God the Spirit, he calls them adulterers. You say you love Jesus, and that Jesus is your Savior, your Lord. But you also have this friendship, he's suggesting, this intimate friendship with the world. And he uses the Greek term philia for friendship. Philia is taken from the Greek word philia, which we, more, we may be more familiar with, referring to a, a deeply tender affection. So James is saying, believers, you have developed a real deep, intimate affection for the world, for her lifestyle, for her uh, philosophies or ideologies. And you've bought into that. 
Now, the Bible never uses phileo in a, a commanding manner, so directing people to, to love God. Instead, it's used as a warning. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul writes it like this. If anyone has no love, if anyone has no phileo for the Lord, let him be accursed, irrespective of what he says. He might call himself a Christian, but if he has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And here in our text, James writes, if you have love for the world, if you have this phileo for the world, remember, remember, believer, that the world is enmity with God. The world is alien to God. Enmity means to be hostile, antagonistic towards someone or something. So he's saying that the world is antagonistic. The world is hostile towards God. So if as a Christian, you love the world, that's not the parties and the clubs or any of that stuff, but rather thinking about the world's, loving the world's philosophies and ideologies and practices, their views, their opinions in life. If you love that, then you're living in hostility to God is what James is saying. And that is pretty harsh. And from here, James then takes us back to God's word from where we get our direction for living from. We've got to go back to the word every time, uh, time and James takes us there. Verse 5, or, or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? <clears throat> now, now, the spirit referred to here is our human spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit that James is referring to. His emphasis here is that the unbeliever's heart, the unbeliever's spirit is naturally um, drawn toward evil, drawn towards a love of this world's philosophies and ideologies. And I'm not suggesting that every unsaved soul is an evil person, but, but they buy those philosophies, those ideologies. So as believers, if we're quenching the Holy Spirit within us in preference for a love of our own spirit, which is drawing us to a, a love for the world and its attractions, then we get this completely wrong. And God jealously wants our, our human spirit to submit or to surrender to his Holy Spirit, so enabling us as believers to be free of secular living and secular thinking and worldly thinking in that way. And to help us in this battle of struggle, James informs us that, that, that God will actually give to us more grace as we go through this, which being his grace is, is more powerful than the desire of worldly attraction that is rising within us. But there's a little catch if we were to experience this amazing grace. Verse 6 reads like this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I, I, the prophet Isaiah, the old prophet Isaiah, put it like this. He's, he's in chapter 66, verse 2. He says, God will look to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. That's the, the human spirit. And trembles at my word. That's the one God will look to. So I've got, I've got a question for you. It's a question I ask myself. Every so often, I really do. When did you last tremble physically on reading the Word of God? You read the Word of God and you were so shaken by the authority there, by the expectation, by what God is saying to his people. When did you last read the Word and, and tremble like that? Maybe we have some work to do in humbling ourselves to bring ourselves to that position. As we move down to verses 7 to 10 of our text, we're going to look here very practically at a list of 10 things or 10 commands given by James telling us how we can receive this amazing grace. So we're looking to receive this amazing grace and James uh, makes these suggestions to us. Um, 
even as believers, we need this amazing grace in our lives. So let me read verses 7 to 10 to us. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we're going to look then as, as believers here. We want to see how we can get this amazing grace so we can humble our lives and be fruitful uh, and joyous and beneficial to God with our prayer life. Number one, James calls us to submit. No, no one likes to submit. To submit can often be considered as defeat or weakness, and we look at it like that in society. But James tells us that it's absolutely necessary for us as believers to submit and experience submission if we're ever going to honor God. Um, John MacArthur explains submission like this. He says, the word was used of soldiers under the authority of their commander. So, so Jesus is our commander. And what Jesus says, we submit to. We have to do that as believers, not interpreting things as we want, but submitting to what Jesus says in the Bible. Very important. Number two, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's good news. This is the other side of the coin to our, our submitting. See, to resist literally means to take a stand against. So we're called here to stand against the devils. Believers who, who do not love this world, we're to submit to the worship of Jesus himself and Jesus alone. We're to follow him. Uh, Paul tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, that before our salvation in Jesus, we followed the course of this world, um, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's where we were. But then we were redeemed by Jesus. And so we follow Jesus today. So that's what we have to get to, um, submit to the, the Lord in that way. Number three, we're to draw near to God. In verse eight, to draw near is to, to consciously, to intentionally go after a relationship of intimacy with God. But, but what, what might that look like? Well, Paul can help us here from Philippians chapter three, verse 10. He, he writes to the, the believer that I may know him, that is that, that you and I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and that we might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul says that should be one of your goals as a believer as you draw near to God. You see, our salvation soul involves so much more than our, our submitting to God and our resisting the devil. Our salvation gives our redeemed heart a passionate longing, a passionate desire for communion, holy communion with God. The psalmist put it like this. Um, he, he writes here in, in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, As the deer pants after the water, so my soul, my, my soul longs after you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, he says in verse 2. That's what we must desire. That should be the, the heartbeat of every believer, to draw near to God with that intimate intent. Number four. Cleanse your hands. If you've ministered in the Old Testament, if you're an Old Testament priest, you would have to wash your hands in, in ceremonial fashion before attempting to draw near to God. We read in Exodus 30 that the priests had to do this so they would not die. They go to do the sacrificial act, act, act there, but they had to have their hands purified or they would die. 
This is how seriously God took these matters. And James here speaks to, to sinners. He's speaking to anyone involved in sin, any type of sin. So for a person in the Old Testament to approach God, they had to recognize the, the sin in their life and they had to confess that sin, get rid of that sin. Well, James is warning us as, as believers in these modern times to make sure that we, first of all, are believers in Christ, we're in the faith, and so we then confess our sin to a holy, just God who will forgive us of every sin. That's what he wants to continually do as we journey. Our sins are forgiven, but he wants to forgive us ongoing so we're free and cleansed from all forms of sin. Number five, purify your hearts. The cleansing of our hands indicated a correction of our external behavior, external lifestyle, while the purifying of our hearts refers to our, our need of having our intentions, our motives, our desires uh, of, of our hearts brought into line with God's love and what God's intent is for the believer. We read in 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls at your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, that's a bit of a past tense. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We've got this pure heart and we've got to love each other from it. It's through uh, a love for God's truth that our hearts are purified, so enabling us to, to practice a pure, holy, Christ-like love for one another. That's what it means to be a church. This is when God is going to work among us when we practice these things like this. Number six, lament, verse nine. Whenever we are sorrowful for our, uh, our sin against the holy God, who loves us and who gives Jesus Christ our Savior to redeem us, an amazing gift, then we'll be wretched and miserable. We'll move into a position of lamenting our sin. I believe this is what God expects, what God desires from his people, because every sin we commit is kind of like you and I taking a razor blade, if it was possible, and slicing God who, who's given Christ for us. That's only an analogy but it's to give us an idea of how our sin grieves God. He takes his sin very seriously. And so it hurts him and grieves him intent intently. Uh, that message is so very different from what's often presented in the name of Jesus, in the name of God today. We hear things like, give your life to Jesus. He'll, he'll solve your problems or give your life to Jesus. He'll make you successful. But rarely do we hear that you can glorify God, that you, the believer, can bring incredible glory to God by lamenting over your sin, your sin that grieves him and the steals the victory of your joy in your own life. So we need to be a people who are willing to lament. Number seven, there's nothing wrong with mourning in verse nine. We, we mourn whenever we have a, an internal awareness of how our sin grieves God. Uh, the psalmist writes in 51 verse uh, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So that this is a good thing to, to bring ourselves in this morning fashion. In Matthew 5, verse 4, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord tells us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comfort is coming. You, you, this okay to mourn is a good thing. When did you last bring honor to God's name by your mourning over your sin? that has offended him. Lord, I've, I've grieved you, I've offended you, I'm mourning that, <clears throat> I really am. Number eight, 
um, James writes about weeping. He says in verse 9, to weep is an outward expression of the, the brokenness and, and grief within. In Mark 14, 72, we read of Peter denying the Lord three times. And we think that's, that's shocking. <clears throat> and it was. He denies the Lord three times. And the scriptures tell us that he broke down and wept. Every time that you and I sin, we, we literally deny Jesus to be our Lord. And we are just like Peter, except that rarely do we break down and weep at our sinful denial of Jesus like, like Peter did. We kind of just brush it off and, and get on or even make excuses. It's just the way I am or whatever. Well, I want to tell us that when, when that genuinely happens in our lives, the lives of God's people, the Spirit of God begins to work. There's, there's no human manufacturing of the, the Spirit at work. Instead, the Holy Spirit works because we, the church, the bride of Jesus, are broken, a people in desperation for God. And so we, we weep. We say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've offended you. I need you so much. Number nine, we're almost finished. Laughter. Um, the type of laughter, however, being referred to here, here by James is, is that of a, a loud, raucous, worldly type of laughter that entertains the unsaved and their, their philosophy and their ideology and their supposed joy. Whilst at the same time, the believers, the believers weep for the lost souls around them. We're grieved, Lord, there's these people around us that are lost. Are lost. Even these people who are laughing that they're lost. They could be family members or friends or work colleagues. Well, Luke expresses it well with the words of Jesus and what we call the, the Beatitudes in Luke uh, 6, 21, 25. 21 reads like this. Blessed are you who weep now, presently, currently, for you shall laugh, um, be, being in heaven, in the future tense. You're, 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 weeping, you're, you're weeping now, this present tense, but the future tense, you're going to laugh. You'll have joy unspoken of then first 25 woe to you who laugh now who laugh presently currently for you shall mourn and weep an everlasting separation from god and hell and his love forever that's the tragedy of it so let's make sure our laughter is such that it brings glory to god currently and we're not laughing at the wrong things in life Number 10, final one, humble yourselves before the Lord in verse 10. Now, now, now that we are conscious of our being in the presence of a, an infinitely holy God, that is God who never changes and has always been holy and always will be forever holy, well, be, be, being conscious or aware of that truth, we then make this decision, this choice within ourselves to, to make ourselves less or lower. We recognize that we're, we're not as important as God. We recognize that there's nothing ultimately important about us. So we humble ourselves before the Lord. Matthew writes in 23, 12, whoever, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So let's make sure that we're humbling ourselves currently before the Lord. This is the position James wants these believers to go to. So we need to be living correctly before God if we're to hope for God to graciously answer our prayers. I think some of these practices that James mentions to us here will help us immensely get this whole prayer life, prayer action correct, and we'll follow God's pattern while not seeking the things that we want from God, but we'll be praying His will be done, His his name, his being glorified and honored. So as we live correctly, we're going to pray correctly. And just in case you're still a little bit unclear, that means that we will humble ourselves before a holy God who has miraculously and amazingly accepted us in the Son whom he loves, our Lord and Savior, 
called Jesus Christ. So we're a privileged, honored people, a people who can come to him in prayer, all because of what he's done for us. So as we come to him in prayer, let's make sure we're honestly living for him, really humbling ourselves and coming to him in the right manner. Let me pray for you. Lord, we come to you today, a people who have learned, discovered, are discovering. And we come, Lord, in a, a spirit and nature, a practice of humility. Lord, we recognize we don't even deserve to pray to you. But we thank you so much that you listen to the prayers of your people. We ask, Lord, that you be glorified in our lives, that your will be done, that your name exalted, that, that your practices are, are taken by our hands or minds or beings and used. Lord, that we will hold testimonies worthy before a fellow man and that we will live lives that truly point people to you and live lives in this world that we are, we're living in that is completely different from the practices, the ideologies, the philosophies that are all around us. Lord, help us go to your word. Help us go there and help us live and follow those truths. And so, Lord, we ask all of this in your name. And we ask all of this for your glory alone. Amen. Thank you for your time, folks. And uh, thank you for being, for being with us today. I trust that you have an amazing week. Living for Jesus, may you know his blessing on your life. Thank you.